From the studios of KPCW in Park City, this is Cool Science Radio, science and technology that is accessible and entertaining. And if we can understand it, so will you. I'm Katie Mullally. This morning we speak with cosmologist Robert Trota, who reveals how stargazing has shaped the course of human civilization in his new book, Starborn. How the stars made us, and who would we be without them? Then, planetary scientist Dr. Sabina Stanley explores the, <laughs> explores the beating heart of planets and what created them, from the building blocks of swirling cosmic dust, pebbles, and gas, to coalesced plantecesimal beginnings to the worlds we see today. Stay with us. We'll be back after these messages. Welcome back to Cool Science Radio. I'm Lynn Ware Peak, And I'm Katie Mullally. Well, the stars have served as our timekeepers, our navigators, our muses. They were once even our gods. How radically different would we be if our ancestors had looked up to the night sky and seen nothing? Our next guest is cosmologist Roberto Trota, and he pairs the history of our starstruck species with a dramatic alternative version, a world without stars, where our understanding of science, art, and ourselves would have been radically altered. It's all in his new book, which he joins us now to discuss. It's called Starborn, How the Stars Made Us and Who We Would Be Without Them. Roberto, welcome to Cool Science Radio. Hi, Lynn and Katie. Great to be here. Well, I read somewhere in in the material that you live in Trieste in Italy, and that's kind of around towards Slovenia, if I have my geography right. You said in under dark skies. And I always think of there's so it's so densely populated in Europe that I wonder about the night skies. And and how do you achieve that? Do you live in, in the country? Well, I must preface this by saying that until recently I lived in London, England, and uh, that's the, definitely a very, very bright sky where you hardly see anything at all. So from London, from the point of view of skies, almost anywhere else is an, is an improvement. But I live um, just outside Trieste on the Karst, which is a plateau overlooking the sea. And there the sky is quite dark. So dark, in fact, that uh, on a new moon night, we can see the Milky Way sometimes, which is really a splendid sight. So actually... It has really rekindled my connection with the sky, and it's been beautiful to be a, be able to just go out on a dark January night and see Orion blazing in the sky, and uh, you know showing my kids the planets and getting them to recognize them. It's been wonderful. Yes, well, here in Utah, we do have a lot of uh, places that you can go and see a very dark sky and the beautiful night sky. And every time I do that, it's usually when I'm camping, I look up and. I see the constellations, and then I saw see a line of Starlink satellites going across the sky. And I, at, at the same time, it's it's interesting to me because you see this technology and the progress. On the other hand, I think about people like you who must look up and see that and just feel this aching disappointment. Absolutely, the fact that we are encroaching on, onto our cosmic environment, the last global commons night sky, which, uh, as you say, if you go out camping, find it pristine still. But the satellites, they are and they will be everywhere. And so it's going to be very, very difficult to escape this human presence, which for a while during the beginning of the space age was exciting and new and novel and the frontier of exploration. But now really is only uh, becoming you know, a, a threat to our experience of the night sky, to the data that astronomers collect, up to 50% of the data of our ground-based telescopes will be affected and uh, and uh, uh, corrupted by these passing satellites. And just you know, for the enjoyment of the night sky, for the, the connection that we can all feel on a dark night with, with the sight that has guided humanity's footsteps from the very beginning, from prehistory to today. If you're just joining us on Cool Science Radio, our guest is Roberto Trotta. He is the author of Starborn, How the Stars Made Us and Who We Would Be Without Them. Well, I know myself, and I know I think a lot of us instinctually look up to the night sky just to kind of get our bearings, make sure everything's all right with the world. But what would it have been like without those stars? Like you talk a lot about in the book about if we'd had a cloud cover, whatever led to us not seeing the night sky. I know the whole book is about this, but what would happen to us? How would we have formed differently? 
That's exactly the key question at the heart of the book, because you see, I spent 15 years in England and uh, the, the clear skies were preciously far and few in between. And I started wondering, you know, what it would, would it be like if nobody had ever seen a star, if we had been fated to live on, on a planet just like Earth, but perpetually covered in clouds everywhere at all times. Imagine nobody ever knowing that the universe exists out there. And uh, at first I thought of all the kind of obvious connections of the stars with you know, who we are today, you know, the scientific revolution would probably not have started quite as it did with, you know, Galileo looking up at the sky and timekeeping and navigation and orientation, all of those things. But then I realized by digging deeper that the stars have a lot more to answer for. So in a world without stars, everything would have been uh, affected, uh, spirituality, religion, art, uh, our very essence of who we are and how we perceive ourselves to be in this grand cosmos that's all around us, we wouldn't have had access to that. And so the book is, my, is the result of this reflection to describe all the unsuspected ways in which the stars have contributed to our you know, being here in, in the shape or form that we take today as a species, but also trying to imagine what could have happened in a world where we, we were not blessed to have seen the stars. And that's quite, quite a grim thought, actually. Well, in, you, in your book, you talk about how Homo sapiens used stargazing and our ability to utilize stars as our secret weapon against Homo sapiens, sorry, against Neanderthals. How did we do that? Well, that's a, a, a hypothesis that I put forward in the book. Uh, when I realized that, uh, you know, this big mystery of why are we here and the Neanderthals who had three, four hundred thousand years head start or us disappeared, you know, 43 or so thousand years ago uh, in the middle of glacial ages, upswing and changes of climate. Uh, what was, you know, the secret that made us Homo sapiens so more superior, superior in terms of survival? And, and that remains an open question today in paleoanthropology. One of the uh, theories is that we were better at networking, that we were better able to meet up and exchange knowledge and new inventions and new uh, ideas, and that uh, spread uh, important survival skills throughout our population, something that the Neanderthals were less able to do. And I thought, well, actually, surely stars played an important role in that, in guiding people, not just to meeting points, but also in telling them when to meet. And we have evidence for this. For example, in, in um, uh, first people in Australia who lived in historical times, they used not only the stars as dream tracks in the sky to, to get to where they needed to be in, you know, in the trackless uh, outback of Australia, but they used the moon to, to uh, decide and agree beforehand the time of the meeting point uh, with, you know, with no clocks. How do you actually make sure that everybody's in the right place at the right time? So paying attention to the moon and to the stars might well have been the way that our people, our ancestors were able to meet up, exchange culture, exchange technology, new ideas. And there are, there's an element that I discovered that might even take us all the way back to 100,000 years ago at the very beginning of when we left Africa. And that's the story of the Seven Sisters, the Pleiades. Ah, well, we better go into the Seven Sisters. Tell us more. Well, the Seven Sisters, is, you know, it's this unmistakable feature of the night sky, you know, next to the constellation of Taurus is an open cluster of uh, blue stars, like jewels in the sky. And they're beautiful, and they've been recognized as such by all cultures at all times. Uh, but what is mysterious about them is that almost all cultures see seven stars or seven sisters or seven women, while the naked, unaided eye today can only see six. In exceptional conditions, somebody with a very keen eyesight can see more than six stars, but never seven sometimes eight, sometimes 11, 15, but never seven. So the question is, why do we talk about, why do myth and legends talk consistently about seven sisters and myth and legends that are have uncanny parallels between ancient Greece and uh, Ab Aboriginal Australian legends and myth that have been apart for 40,000 years. And so one possible explanation is that those stories, the origin of the seven sister myth predates the times when Homo sapiens left Africa. Because in fact, if you look closely at the star cluster, you discover that there's one star that's now too close to another to be discernible with the naked eye. But the relative movement between these stars is such that 100,000 years ago or so, the two stars would have been far apart, sufficiently far apart for the average human eyesight to be able to distinguish them. 
And so it's just possible then that the myth of the seven sister predates the time when Homo sapiens left Africa and has been transmitted orally all the way through to all the cultures, to Australian first people, just as much as to ancient Greeks. And what we hear today in those myths and stories is a, a, an echo, a faint echo of the early interest of our ancestors for the sky. And that's a beautiful thing to, to contemplate that perhaps, you know, all the, that neck craning awe goes all the way all the way to the very beginning where we first left uh, our, our, our sort of the cradle of humankind. Wow, that is really interesting. I suppose the study of the Aboriginal people in Australia is really fascinating when when you look at their celestial navigation. Mm -hmm. And it feels like, I mean, if you survey the world and you look at people that still use the stars to navigate by, I would imagine the Aboriginals are one of those people, one of the few people that really still do. Is that correct? This, uh, these ancient traditions are have largely died out, unfortunately, but there is a revival in, in, uh, in, in their knowledge and in using the traditional knowledge. Um, Aboriginal Australians are one of those people who, you know, uh, have been recorded to have names and legends associated to each one of the three thousand stars that you could see from 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 you know from a dark in a dark night in Australia. But equally, the Polynesian master navigators were another uh, example of great knowledge of the stars, and you know, using the stars, using the knowledge of. Uh, currents, uh, the sea, the color of water, the, the, the clouds and seabirds, they were able to routinely cover 4,000 miles between Hawaii and Tahiti with no instruments, no charts, no maps, nothing except their incredible knowledge of the sea and the night sky. And those traditions have been unfortunately largely lost due to col colonialism and the extinction almost of their uh, traditional lifestyle, but they're coming back and there is a revival now um, bringing back this this kind of uh, uh, instrument-less uh, navigation abilities that still rely very much on deep knowledge of the sky and and, and nature, which is beautiful. Well, Roberto, I know that in the 1700s, at least in Western society, we had the longitude problem, which meant that ships couldn't sail from England across without a, a functioning clock that could keep time. And it wasn't until John Harrison solved that clock problem. But this was long after the Polynesians had been navigating. So how did they solve their longitude problem or did they even see it as a problem? The, the evidence is scant because unfortunately when, when James Cook and, and the other explorers made contact with, uh, uh, with Polynesian cultures, they, they were not interested in finding out exactly how they did it. They all marveled at their abilities, but you know they had this sort of cultural prejudice by which you know, they weren't doing it the way we are doing it, therefore it must be inferior in some kind. And so they never actually found out, which is a real shame. But what we can say, uh, based on what has survived, is that the Polynesian master navigators have a completely different outlook on what it means to navigate on the high seas. And there is one artifact that is a testament to that. It's called Tupaya's map. And it's a, it's a map, a unique map that was born out of the encounter of James Cook and his crew in uh, 1769 with a uh, Polynesian master navigator and priest, uh, Tupaya. And uh, when Cook uh, left uh, Tahiti after navigating there to measure the transit of Venus in front of the sun and thereby determine the size of the solar system, he br brought with him Tupaya uh, to pilot the ship among the uncharted waters of the Pacific. And Tupaya not only did that, but at some point during the crossing to New Zealand, they got together and they, and they, and they drew a chart of all the islands that Tupaya knew about, many of which the British had never heard of Tupaya. But this chart is a unique testament to the different perception of the Polynesian navigators because the chart is set up in the traditional Western sense of, of, of map making, north at, at the top and south at the bottom, east and west. And all the 40 islands or so that the British knew about are laid out according to that convention. There is 30 or so more islands on that map that Tupaya laid out according to his own knowledge of, of the archipelago. And they are laid out in a very different way. They're laid out with the reference point set at the center of the map, which is the reference point that the master navigators took when they were voyaging. And they didn't think of you know, uh, 
a, a bird's eye view of the of the sea as we do they thought about the navigator being at the center of their own journey with a static canopy above them flowing past the canoe flowing past the ship their radical difference in perspective which was anchored in their deep knowledge of when such star such and such star would pass overhead and uh, and that gave them the means of navigating without clocks without instruments without charts even wow well, and how did, I know you talk quite a bit about how the stars have affected us from a spiritual perspective. What's the foundation of that? I think I, I, I've come to believe that really the foundation of that is the sense of grandiosity that the contemplation of the night sky that you are lucky enough in Utah to still have, uh, I hope, uh, as we were hearing before, that contemplation, that sense of grandiosity of the universe around us coupled with the idea that we are only a small part of that big universe and there is no other aspect of nature. I mean, there's plenty of fantastic aspects of nature. Think of a, a, a hundred year old sequoia or, or whales or other great landscape, the Grand Canyon, they are awe inspiring, but they're not common to us all because everybody's got their own. While the starry night, the depth of the universe all around us, they engendered that sense of awe and questioning and the why, the big why questions. And, it's no coincidence that almost invariably in all religions and all spiritual beliefs and myth, the big gods, they lived up in heavens, in the sky, because that was the ultimate, you know, grandiose place uh, appropriate for the most powerful gods. And just the sight of the star, the stars very much influenced our perception of ourselves with respect to what the, the big universe that is out there. Ah, if you're just joining us on Cool Science Radio, we're speaking with Roberto Trota about his new book, Starborn. Going back to James Cook, I'm really interested in this. It's funny how we've all heard of James Cook, but we've never heard of Tupaya. Yet it was this Polynesian master navigator who helped James Cook discover, well, had already discovered for James Cook, shall we say, parts of the archipelago. Did James Cook then take some of Tapaya's navigational expertise, or did he just sort of throw it away and say, "Hey, thanks for the thanks for the tips and the maps of all these new islands. See you later." I mean, do we take there, lessons from the past? I think we should take lessons from the past and the missed opportunities of of this sort of cultural exchange, which didn't really take place. But what we do know from from the writings of the British uh, crew and, and Cook himself and Joseph Banks, who was the botanist on board, we do know that uh, the, uh, the the mariners, the British mariners, were were puzzling about you know how does Tupaya do it? You know, day or night, he could unfailingly point back towards Tahiti without any chart, any instrument. He just knew where he was and what the direction was at any given time. He claimed that he could foretell the weather of, of the next few days just by looking at the shape of the Milky Way in the sky. And nobody ever thought about asking how he did it, because obviously the shape of the Milky Way is not influenced by the weather, but perhaps you know high altitude winds might have brought about slight changes that he was, uh, he was uh, able to discern. And so I think everybody was very uh, surprised, but at the same time, because of that cultural stance, that Western science and the Western way of doing it was superior to these, for them, barbaric people, they never actually uh, tried to learn all that much from them, except, you know, the, the practical things that they needed to know, you know, what is the next island and, and who are the inhabitants, will they be friendly? Can you speak the language for us, which Tupaya did translate? You know all these languages, and and was fated as 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 a, as a big navigator when he reached the long lost island of New Zealand, which was the origin we think of 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 his of his people thousands of years prior, and so all of that greatly puzzled the the Brits. But uh, fortunately, they took away very little from it, except to say Cook said in his diary, if a, a new expedition ever comes back out to the Pacific Ocean, uh, they should really take Tupaya with them because it's such a helpful uh, asset to have. But unfortunately, Tupaya was never to see the Northern Star. He never made it back to England. He died of the center in Jakarta during a during a, a stop oh. Of, oh. Of, of Cook's ship. And so he was lost. Oh, well, this is one of the great things about your book is just telling these stories from in history about how we how we really valued the stars. And I think you're making it 
in in a lot of ways a cautionary tale about what what the future is. And I know in our area we just had a, a very controversial approval of a a church that that the the idea is that you uplight this church so that you know it can it glows as the heavens or or something and mm. there was a lot of controversy from the people who really value dark skies and for you to come out with this book that says you know what if we couldn't see the stars is very valuable and you know i'm wondering if you could just comment on that in in a way that makes all of us value what we look up into and see on a clear, dark night. You know, you're absolutely right, because uh, the paradox of our time is that, you know, we can uh, bring up images of the deep cosmos in, in, in a flash from the internet. We can download these beautiful, incredible pictures from the Hubble, James Webb Space Telescopes, and we see the universe with incredible powers and with eyes like, you know, unlike anything else. But at the same time, this is the mediated, pixelated, experience of, of the universe, which is not the same as the, the, the immediate experience of the uh, perpetual sublime, as Emerson called it. And that's a different kind of experience, one that, that deeply needs to be preserved, not just for romantic reasons, not just because it's, it's, night to lose you, it's nice to lose yourself in the night sky, but because it deeply connects us with the last global commons, you know, the last global shared entity among all of us on, on Earth. And there is a message of unity and also a message of preservation hidden in plain view in the stars because you know let's be honest about it we are facing dangerous times climate change uh, wars terrible wars raging uh, in the, uh, across the planet runaway artificial intelligence all of which or many of which are self-inflicted and to take the perspective that our blue spaceship our beautiful earth is certainly not unique but certainly unique in our cosmic neighborhood and take the cosmic perspective of the stars is a powerful message, I think, and one that if we heeded more, I think that would go a long way towards uh, making us realize how precious it is what we have down here on Earth and how poor and the poor stewardship that we are taking of our planet, including our dark skies. And so I think that's one of the most important messages of the book. The stars have been important in the past, have guided us silently throughout history. And if we look at them in the right way, they might inspire us to to become, like Jonathan said, the the, uh, the right the good ancestors, you know, become yeah. good ancestors and be able to take good care of this this planet of ours. Well, and in the book, you talk about how it's not just light pollution that's destroying this last global commons; it's also the satellite traffic and junk that's in space. I mean, you were saying that by 20, 2030, the visible fake stars could outnumber real stars. I mean, what does the space pollution look like now and how many of the quote unquote stars that we're looking at now really are just leftover satellites or something that Elon Musk has once again launched into space. That's tragic. Uh, to put this into perspective from 1957, which is when the Sputnik was first launched by the Soviets into space, the first uh, artificial satellite, until recently we had sent total 6,000 or so satellites into, into orbit. But in the last few years, like three or four years, we sent about 10,000 new satellites up, and there are plans to get to up to 100,000 satellites, most of them low-Earth orbit satellites that are intended for internet communication, like uh, Starlink, for example. And, and, and while internet communication is useful and, and, and connectivity is precious and valuable, that also means that by 2030, these passing dots overhead will outnumber the true stars that we can see in the universe, and there will be no escape. Uh, you know, even in in dark sky Utah, you won't be able to escape this infestation of passing dots that will forever ruin the night sky for everybody. And that's it. To my to my mind, that's an urgent environmental issue because you know we've you know, we've encroached into into the rainforest, we've uh, filled the, the oceans with plastic, and now well, we think space is infinite, and it probably is, but low Earth orbit is not infinite, and it's getting rapidly congested uh, with, with great dangers, not just for you know, our view of the night sky and the data that astronomers gather, up to 50% of the data that astronomers collect about the, the distant galaxies will be affected by these passing satellites, but also because once the low Earth orbit is full of satellites, the chances of a collision dramatically increase, and that will fill orbit with debris, dangerous debris, and could uh, essentially prevent us from e even sending new satellites or, or manned space missions to, to space. 
And that's a real urgent problem. I just keep picturing that opening scene of Wally, where you approach Earth and it's covered in just all these old broken satellites. Huh, that movie was foretelling in a lot of ways. Are totally. there any sort of treaties or programs or restrictions being even considered about low Earth satellites or just anything we're shooting into space? Astronomers and our sort of community is is very strongly lobbying exactly in that direction, not just to protect our own scientific interests, but really to protect space and, and the night sky from being forever robbed from us all. Unfortunately, it's a very, very difficult thing to do because uh, it, this is a commercial space race. And so we've got plenty of commercial competitors uh, vying for supremacy and trying to, you know, colonize that space before everybody else does so. Uh, and, and that gives them strategic commercial advantage. And so far, you know, there are no regulations. Space is for all, uh, and, and it's a free for all uh, uh, resource that people are striving. It's like the Wild West in, uh, in California uh, in the early 20th, 20th century. Um, and so we're certainly trying to lobby both governments and space, uh, space um, companies to be considerate. Uh, but at the heart of it is, is a market economy and, and people are trying hard to colonize it as fast as they can and, and get the economic rewards from it without too much consideration, unfortunately, for the, the, the common needs of humankind. Mm. There are so many things that we didn't get a chance to talk about, Roberto. Your book is really wonderful and I, I feel like it's one of those books that may be part of our social responsibility to to read. So I, I hope your book tour goes really well. And thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for having me. The book is Starborn, How the Stars Made Us and Who We Would Be Without Them. Our guest is Roberto Trota. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Roberto. This is a great book. Welcome back to Cool Science Radio. I'm Lynn Ware Peak. And I'm Katie Mullally. Our next guest is award-winning planetary scientist, Dr. Sabina Stanley. What is a planetary scientist anyway? Well, Dr. Stanley is the Bloomberg Distinguished Professor of Planetary Physics at Johns Hopkins University, and she studies things, well, the likes of which the rest of us don't even know exists, like diamond rain, frozen seas, iron snow, and helium rain. Sabina Stanley is the author of the new book, What's Hidden Inside Planets? And we're so pleased she could join us on Cool Science Radio. Dr. Sabina Stanley, welcome to the program. Thanks so much. So happy to be here. Planetary scientists. You weren't always a planetary scientist. What sort of engaged and inspired you about planets in general? And how about starting with our very own? Yeah, great question. So it turns out that I grew up in an impact crater. So about 1.8 billion years ago, a giant meteor hit the surface of the Earth in a town that's now called Sudbury in Ontario, Canada. And it created a giant hole that filled with a melt pool and brought up a bunch of resources from deeper inside the Earth to the surface. And all of that is now mined today to be used for a range of uh, things that we need. So. I like to think, although at the time I didn't really understand the importance of my hometown Sudbury for a planetary science, I like to think that in my subconscious it was planted that, hey, you're in a kind of really cool environment and maybe you should study this more. And so in that crater, those resources that you described, did they come from the meteor or did they were they unearthed due to the impact? Yeah, it's exactly the second. So they're unearthed. We materials that are deeper down and actually kind of hard to access come closer to the surface when you put a giant hole um, into the planet. So, so that's how we get access to those resources. If you're just joining us on Cool Science Radio, we are talking with Dr. Sabina Stanley. She is the author of What's Hidden Inside Planets. Well, you start the book with a, a story about you seeing the Aurora Borealis for the first time. Haven't seen it yet, but plan on it someday. But you you start talking about the Earth's magnetic field and how that is so important to our well-being. Like, first of all, it enables us to live on this planet and also how it correlates to other planets. So before we go into further discussion about the magnetic field, 
tell our listeners how the magnetic field is formed on Earth? Because I think a lot of us don't understand. Well, does anybody really understand? That's a great question. So our magnetic field is generated deep inside the planet in Earth's iron-rich core. So if you go down about 2,000 miles, you get to the iron core part of the Earth. And that iron core is molten, it's liquid, and it's trying to remove its heat. So it's kind of convecting, it's moving around, it's got motions, just like if you put a pot of water on the stove or a soup on the stove, you're going to start seeing it rolling around in there. That's all because it's trying to move heat from the deep interior to the top. And that motion of the liquid iron, which is a great electrical conductor, causes magnetic fields to be generated. So we generate our magnetic field in our iron core. And lucky for us, that magnetic field comes all the way to the surface and can surround us. And that magnetic field protects us from high energy particles that come from the sun in the solar wind and from cosmic rays from deep space. Well, and, and you, in the book, you talk about using the possibility of magnetic fields on other planets to help determine the interior. Is So is, is a magnetic field a baseline for actually determining another planet's what it's made of? So magnetic fields can help, right? If you go to a planet with a spacecraft and you detect a magnetic field, that tells you that deep inside that planet, there must be a good electrical conductor. So for a rocky planets, something like an iron core, at a place like Jupiter, it's actually metallic hydrogen. But that means there's a region in there that first of all is a good electrical conductor, has motions going on. So that tells you about the heat inside the planet and how it's evolving in time and it's generating this magnetic field. So it can be a great kind of indicator of processes going on deep inside. Sabina, I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about some of the various missions to these planets that you've been involved with. You have a screenshot there of Jupiter behind yeah, so you. That's true. So I think of myself as a huge fan of, for example, the Juno mission that's at Jupiter right now. Uh, this is an amazing mission because the Juno spacecraft is really close to kind of the surface of Jupiter and it goes in this polar orbit so we can get beautiful imagery of the surface or the, the atmosphere of Jupiter, but it can also detect things that are happening deep inside Jupiter. So we've completely learned new things about how the interior of Jupiter works. Uh, one of my favorite missions, one that I was involved with, was the Mars InSight mission. So this mission landed a lander on Mars and then actually took a seismometer, something that can measure seismic activity shaking, and put it on the surface of Mars. And that seismometer has detected Mars quakes on Mars. So we now know that Mars is tectonically active. There are uh, things that create Mars quakes, and the waves from Mars quakes travel through Mars and come to the seismometer, and we can detect them there. And from that, we can actually learn about the interior structure and composition of Mars itself. That's so fascinating. So what you're saying that if there's seismic activity on any planet, it tells us a lot about what is at the core of that planet. What are some other determiners of that are that are in the core of planets that tell us or that that shall we say surface in a way that gives us evidence of what's going on? Yeah, my other favorite way to study the inside of a planet is to use gravity fields. So when we're on Earth, we think of gravity as having this fixed value, right? It's like 9.8 meters per second squared on the surface of the Earth. But it turns out that if you were to walk around the surface of the Earth and have an instrument that can really carefully measure gravity, you would find that it changes as you walk over the surface of the Earth. The gravity that we feel everywhere is determined by how much mass is below us, how much stuff is down there. And there are little changes in that as you walk around. So if you go up a mountain, you feel a slightly different gravity than if you're at the bottom of an ocean and so on. So we use these tiny changes in gravity to actually carefully figure out what where the mass is and where the, that tells you about composition deep inside the planets and Earth as well. So I love using gravity to investigate the interiors of planets. Well, also you talk about um, volcanoes and how volcanoes have had an important role here on Earth. So before I ask my next question about volcanoes, what have volcanoes done for us and life on Earth? Yeah, great question. So a lot of the things that we consider on the surface of the Earth as making it a nice habitable place to live, for example, oceans, having liquid water in the form of oceans, that water, a lot of it comes from the interior of the Earth that's been outgassed through volcanic eruptions over time. 
So a lot of the, um, the air we breathe, the water that we use for so many things, that's all coming from the inside of the earth through volcanoes. So then as you look at other planets, and I know that one of Jupiter's moons has a vol volcanic eruptions of a sort, what can you tell about another planet's interior if you see similar or some sort of volcanic eruption? Yeah, great question. It's amazing how many times we find volcanoes on other bodies in the solar system. And it's also amazing to see how different those volcanoes can be. So for example, in some of the icy moons, and even on an icy asteroid named Ceres, we find cryovolcanoes. So this is where water actually erupts through an icy surface onto the, the surface. So we get all sorts of different types of volcanoes, but whatever kind you have, it's telling you that there's heat trapped inside the planet that's coming out at these um, volcanic eruption. So that's a great marker to understand kind of how the planet has evolved since it was formed 4.6 billion years ago. Wow. So we've talked about volcanoes, volcanic activity, and we talked a little bit about gravity, and that is a determiner, or that's determined by the electromagnetic field, correct? So gravity is just determined by the mass under us, right? So okay. it has nothing to do with the electromagnetic field. Okay. Um, but magnetic fields are. So when we have this magnetic field surrounding us, um, that was is part of the electromagnetic field and it's created in the core of the earth. Okay. So in terms of electromagnetism in the core of the earth, what does it, in terms of technology and, and the things that we use on a daily basis, how do we use these things based on the electromagnetic field inside the earth and what does it make possible for humans? Yeah, great question. So a couple of things. So first of all, um, we all nowadays use GPS to track where we are, right? Farmers use it for precision farming. We use it to land planes. Uh, all satellites that are in orbit around the earth have magnetometers that can measure the earth's magnetic field to help them figure out where they are in space. Um, what er, what direction they're oriented in. So we actually use the magnetic field almost as like a map or a guide to figure out where these satellites are. So it's crucial um, for our ability to do the type of technology stuff that we do today. Um, but also our magnetic field has a second role in that the fact that we have this giant magnetic field surrounding the earth shields all our satellites from high energy particles that come from the sun and from uh, cosmic rays from space. So if we didn't have our magnetic field generated deep inside the earth, our satellites would basically get fried and we wouldn't have access to all of this information that we get from satellites. I remember a few years ago reading that Mars does not have a magnetic field, which means that Mars probably has a solid core. How do our little rovers stay safe on that planet? Because without the magnetic field, aren't they just getting bombarded with solar particles? So great question. So Mars indeed does not have a magnetic field today and it is getting bombarded. One thing that Mars is a little bit lucky about is it's further away from the sun. So it gets a little bit less of those solar particles, but yes, absolutely. Um, any spacecraft or, you know, if you think about future humans going to Mars, anything like that, we are going to need shielding from these high energy particles that are coming uh, from space because Mars does not have a global magnetic field like Earth does. Well, no, our uh, magnetic field flips every, what, million million years or so? And we only know that through the geologic record on the seafloor. But do we have any idea if those magnetic fields actually flip on other planets that have them? Such a great question. So uh, we do know about these flips, these reversals that happen in the Earth. We'd love to know if other planets also have reversals. Um, because a reversal can take like 100 to 1,000 years to actually happen, we don't have kind of a long enough record to figure out if they happen on other planets, but we're looking for signs of them on other planets. Sometimes you can use just like we do on Earth with the rocks at the at the bottom of the ocean that show you that the flips happen. We're looking for signs of that in rocks on other planets, right? So for example, on Mars, are there signs in the rocks that the field flipped in the past? So this is an active area of research. And I think it'd be really cool if we could find out that other planets' magnetic fields flipped in the past. That would be, wow. Um, so I was at the Recycle Center over the weekend doing my recycling, and one of our listeners, uh, a fan of Cool Science Radio, was there and started talking to me. And he said, you know, Lynn, 
I'd really like to know. I, I love to hear about all the stuff NASA's doing and all that, but you know, should we really be investing billions upon billions of dollars in space exploration when we maybe should be taking that money and put it putting it towards, you know, the climate issue and the climate crisis? And I said, well, I'll ask that question, but I suspect that a lot of what we're doing in space will help us uh, help us to solve the climate crisis. And a lot of what you've been talking about already, you can see why space exploration tells us so much about what we're doing here. But I'd love to hear you explain more, Sabina. Absolutely. And I think this is one of those cases where it's an and answer, right? We can keep doing all this amazing stuff in space and also uh, work towards making the surface of the Earth more uh, safe and, and help us to combat climate change, et cetera, right? I think the key thing to remember is a lot of the technologies that were developed because of space exploration end up being used on Earth to do all sorts of other things. And uh, most of the satellites that we have monitoring the Earth's water resources and, and how climate is changing, those are all developed because of um, the goal of exploring space. And we have so many tools now uh, that came from uh, wanting to figure out how to make things work in very far environments with little human interaction. So you hear about things like, for example, most surgical instruments, electric drills, uh, Velcro, all of those things came out of the space program. But I think also it's important to remember that the amount of money that the U.S. spends on research for Earth and space is a tiny, 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 tiny fraction of the amount of money it spends on other things. They could definitely, um, it's not a, you know, take money from Peter to pay Paul. This is a um, put more money in both of those things um, and maybe look for that money to come from other pots. Mm, great answer. Okay. Um, why is Venus an annoying planet? <laughs> Venus is the worst. Okay. It's, if you're a planetary scientist, Venus is just the worst. If, so here's the amazing thing. We've found as scientists, we've found all of these great ways to study the insides of planets, right? We've developed these techniques because it's really hard. We can't just dig down and figure out what's down there. And so you develop all these amazing methods and then you start applying them to the other planets and that's great. But then you get to Venus and like every single method we have to study the insides of planets doesn't work on Venus. So it's just like the least cooperative planet in the solar system. I'll give you a couple of examples. So the fact that a planet rotates means that it gets bulgy. It, it's fatter in the middle than it is at the poles. And we can use how bulgy it is to determine what the uh, structure of the planet is on the inside. Then you get to Venus. Venus rotates so slowly that it has no bulge. So we can't use that method to figure out what's inside. Then you say, okay, well, maybe we can use um, seismology. So on Earth, tracking seismic waves through the Earth has told us a lot about the, the structure of the interior. But then you think, okay, if I tried to put a seismometer on the surface of uh, Venus, because it's so hot and so corrosive, nothing would survive on the surface. So we can't do things that way. And then you think, okay, maybe we can use magnetic fields. We've learned a lot about uh, the Earth's history from its magnetic fields. Unfortunately, Venus doesn't have a dynamo creating a magnetic field, so we can't even use that. And we don't even know if it had one in the past because the rocks on the surface are so hot, they can't retain their magnetism. So we lose history information as well. So Venus is just basically a really big pain. And um, of course, that means that scientists want to try, try and find new clever ways to figure out what's going on inside. But it, it really is the worst planet when it comes to trying to figure out what's going on inside. Well, you talk about you can't dig into these other planets. We can't even dig into ours. I mean, you say that we've dug, we've been able to dig down just over half a mile in our Earth's crust, and the crust is on average 25 miles thick. I mean, a half a mile out of 25 miles is nothing, not to mention the rest of the planet. What happens at, why can we only get that far into the Earth's crust? So it turns out as you're going deeper inside the Earth, two things are happening. The pressure is increasing immensely and the temperature is increasing immensely. And, you know, not only humans, but even instrumentation does not like hot temperatures and high pressures. So essentially every time we've tried to dig really deep, we get uh, stymied by the fact that stuff can just be crushed or melted and just stops working when it reaches about five or six miles down. Um, so it's really frustrating to try and, and dig inside the planet. It's just essentially uh, impossible with today, today's technology. 
Well, I love to watch, you know, science fiction movies and they find a planet, they land on it, everything's fine other than what's on the surface, but you never see them considering or even doing any, any sort of evaluation of what the planet is made of before they even land. Could a planet's interior composition have an effect on those poor travelers that happen to land on it? Absolutely. And in fact, even if you look at Earth, right, so much stuff that we consider that makes the surface habitable comes from the processes happening deep inside. And so in order to know whether the surface is a nice place to walk around on some other planet in these science fiction uh, movies or books, you need to know what's going on deep inside the planet. They're completely connected. Speaking of science fiction, I was at a farmer's market in California over the summer and looking through the vegetable stands. And then I come to the tent that's the Flat Earth Society. And while it may almost feel like an insult to even ask you this question. I'm sure you get it a lot. What you know about the inside of planets, how how do you even explain to yourself why this theory has taken hold to a certain degree among a very small percentage of our population? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think I, I have a, a few thoughts on this. First of all, I think it's helpful to try to understand why people want to believe that it's a flat earth, right? There's something else there because there's zero scientific evidence that, that can be used to back up the claim that the earth is flat. So there must be some other reason that people want to believe this. So I think a, a really important thing to do is to try to understand what's making people want to believe that. And maybe that's the way we can get it if we understand the, the motivation for that then maybe we can work towards making sure that people have the, the information they need, the tools they need um, to understand that that's, it's impossible. Uh, so I think that's really the key is understand the motivation for wanting to believe that. That's very interesting. I know it, it does surround something that makes people feel um, secure or something. I, and I don't, I, I didn't really stop at that tent, I will say, at the <laughs> farmer's market. So talking about how far we have penetrated the earth, will we ever be able to do the journey to the center of the earth? I'm not sure that we'll ever do it with like an actual ship or, or digging and stuff. Fortunately, uh, we can use these indirect methods, things like gravity, magnetic fields, to learn about what's going on deep inside. And another thing that actually helps is sometimes the center of the earth comes to the surface. So maybe not the center, but deeper in the earth, uh, for example, diamonds form um, at several hundred miles depth. And those diamonds sometimes come to the surface through volcanic eruptions and what are called kimberlite pipes. And the amazing thing about diamonds, so if you're a jeweler, you want your diamond to be as pure as possible. But if you're a geologist, you want your diamond to have something stuck in the middle of it because diamonds can act like little capsules that keep material from the deep earth enclosed in them and, and staying at their pressures as they come up to the surface. So we can actually get samples from the deep interior of the earth through diamonds, and then we can um, investigate those and learn about what's going on. So for example, we know that there is water deep inside the earth because of uh, little bits stuck in the middle of diamonds. Well, and you talk about the you know the, the the idea that some interiors have the diamond icebergs or iron snow or helium rain. I'm just trying to envision what sort of hellscape that might be, and what planets do you think there that that exists on now? Yeah, absolutely. So it's amazing to think we think we understand materials, right? You're you're on the surface of the Earth. You take something like water, and you're like, yeah, I get it. And water can be liquid. It can be a water vapor. It can be a solid ice. Um, but then you take water and you squeeze it to millions of atmospheres of Earth atmospheres in pressure. You heat it up to thousands of degrees, and it behaves completely differently. So uh, this is where you get things. For example, you take helium, this lovely gas that we fill balloons with here on the surface of the Earth. But if you put that under high enough pressure in Jupiter and Saturn, the helium is actually like this liquid material, and it rains out of hydrogen. So you can get a nice helium rain going on there. Similarly, in the cores of Mercury and possibly Mars and even Ganymede, which is a moon of Jupiter, um, in their cores, we think that iron is actually snowing in the core. So it's, it's going from a molten state to a solid and actually descending down like snowflakes in the core. So all these really cool things can happen when you put things under really high pressures and temperatures. 
I'm really grateful for our little planet. <laughs> and you think about how we truly are in the Goldilocks zone, not just from our distance from the sun, but also the composition of our planet. How does that play into the fact that we can just, that we can live here? I know we talked about volcanoes and the magnetic field, but what else about our lovely little orb enables us to live here? Yeah, great question. I think ultimately um, you have to think about what conditions made it conducive for things like plants to exist, right? So you need to have the temperatures be just in the right zone. So our plants then uh, you know, absorb carbon dioxide, make oxygen from it. That's how we got here, essentially. So you need to be in a place where the temperatures are regulated and somewhat steady. You don't want to have wild um, swings in temperatures on, say, yearly timescales and things like that, right? You need to make a comfortable environment. And Earth happens to be this place where the temperatures are just right, there's enough regulations in the system. Plate tectonics allows us to have volcanoes and, and heat coming in and out. Um, so that's really kind of the important thing. So then you got to ask, well, for other planets, why didn't that happen? And the short answer is we don't know, but we do know that, for example, you need to have a certain size of rocky planet to have plate tectonics. And so plate tectonics might be one of these key factors we want to look at for other bodies. No other uh, planet in our solar system has plate tectonics, but maybe there are planets orbiting other stars that are just the right size, just the right composition and the right temperature to have plate tectonics. Mm. Well, before we let you go, Sabina, this is first of all, such an interesting conversation and I love your passion for the work that you do. Um, and this is probably a question that you get a lot, but what the heck did poor Pluto do to get demoted? So here's the thing. I don't believe that Pluto is a planet, but that doesn't mean that Pluto's not cool. In fact, it's the reason that we have an entirely new category of planetary bodies, dwarf planets. So I think, you know, people should be excited that Pluto was so weird and so different that it got its own category. So I think it's, um, I don't like to think of it as a demotion. I think like to think of it as got an entirely new position and title and created a whole new department in the in the in the uh, you know workspace of planetary science. That is a really good way to reframe it. <laughs> I love it. Well, our guest, Dr. Sabina Stanley, is the author of a new book, What's Hidden Inside Planets. And I think that Sabina, you what you're trying to do is, you know, turn other people on to planetary science. And you've done it really well here just by talking in, in real layman's terms. So I want to thank you for that. Thanks so much. I greatly appreciate that.